Welcome to conference coverage presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160 and powered by Health Day. Featuring the latest clinical information and research findings from the Endocrine Society's 92nd Annual Meeting and Expo, which took place in San Diego, June 19th through the 22nd. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Kina. And I'm Sue Berg. Endo 2010, the Endocrine Society's 92nd Annual Meeting and Expo, attracted almost 7,000 participants from around the world. The conference focused on advances in the management of obesity, endocrine disorders, diabetes, and menopause, with presentations regarding growth hormones, sex steroids, weight loss surgery, and thyroid cancer. One study presented at the meeting found that extremely obese adults who underwent weight loss surgery with laparoscopic gastric banding not only experienced weight loss but also benefited from improved psychological health one year post-surgery. This was the finding of researchers at the University of the West of England in Bristol United Kingdom and colleagues. Investigators evaluated 21 female and 4 male morbidly obese patients ranging in age from 30 to 58 years, some with type 2 diabetes and some without. After one year, the researchers found that laparoscopic gastric banding improved body mass index, hemoglobin A1c levels, and psychological status, including improvements in psychological and physical quality of life, reductions in levels of general anxiety and depression, and reductions in levels of social anxiety. The study's lead author said in her presentation that gastric banding seems to be an effective tool to help address obesity. However, she said patients still need help in learning other techniques and skills to enable them to deal with difficult events and issues without using food as a coping mechanism. In another study, researchers at the University of Nevada School of Medicine in Reno found that insulin-resistant women lost more weight on a low-carbohydrate diet than on a low-fat diet over a three-month period. Investigators randomized 45 insulin-resistant women with body mass index between 30 and 40 to either a low-fat diet with no more than 20% fat or a low-carbohydrate diet with no more than 45% carbohydrate. All women significantly lost weight at weeks 4, 8, and 12. But at 12 weeks, the researchers found that weight loss was significantly greater for the women on the low-carbohydrate diet Women on the low-carbohydrate diet lost over 9 kilograms, compared with women on the low-fat diet who lost a little over 7 kilograms. The study's lead author said in a statement that these data have potentially widespread applications for clinicians when counseling people with insulin resistance to help improve weight loss as part of a calorie-restricted diet. The author added the recommendation that carbohydrate intake should at least be lowered initially. The study was funded by the company Jenny Craig. Findings were presented that showed obese individuals without metabolic risk factors for diabetes and heart disease were not at elevated risk for cardiovascular disease compared to normal weight or overweight individuals with similar metabolic profiles. Researchers in the Netherlands evaluated over 1,300 obese individuals from the Prevention of Renal and Vascular End-Stage Disease Study. 6.8% of these subjects were metabolically healthy. The researchers found that over a follow-up period of seven and a half years, the risk for cardiovascular events in metabolically healthy individuals who were obese and in metabolically healthy individuals who were overweight was about 1%. Cardiovascular risk in metabolically normal weight individuals was similar, 0.6%. One co-author of the study said that based on these results, it's now reasonable to closely monitor patients who are obese and without risk factors and avoid medication unless other risk factors arise. As part of the conference, the Endocrine Society presented its scientific statement on menopausal hormone therapy, highlighting the benefits and risks. 
The Endocrine Society issued the statement based on new data that suggests the original Women's Health Initiative study showing that menopausal hormone therapy led to an increased risk of heart disease, stroke, and breast cancer failed to take into account the effect of menopausal hormone therapy after onset of menopause. The statement was also published online June 21st in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. The findings reveal that women who started menopausal hormone therapy a short time after onset of menopause at ages 50 to 59 years and continued treatment for five years experienced a decrease in mortality risk with no increased risk of heart disease and a 90% reduction of menopausal symptoms compared to women who started hormone therapy after 60 years of age. The chair of the task force on this issue, Dr. Richard Santon, said in a statement that it is important to remember most women considering menopausal hormone therapy are between the ages of 50 and 55. And in this group, menopausal hormone therapy may have many benefits. Women in their first trimester of pregnancy who have thyroid function test results in the upper half of the normal range, but negative thyroid antibody test results are at higher risk for miscarriage. This was according to a study led by researchers at George Washington University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C. Participants were part of a larger study that included more than 4,500 women screened for thyroid-stimulating hormone and thyroid peroxidase in the first trimester of pregnancy. Participants were randomized to a universal screening group or a case-finding group and stratified as high or low risk for thyroid disease. Researchers found 4,123 women in their first trimester of pregnancy who were thyroid antibody negative with a TSH of 5 or lower. The findings revealed a significant increase in the rate of miscarriage in thyroid antibody negative pregnant women with TSH levels between 2.5 and 5.0 compared to antibody negative women with TSH levels below 2.5. The rate of miscarriage in women with levels over 2.5 was about 6% compared with 3.6% in women with TSH levels below 2.5. There's been ongoing debate as to whether or not the normal range for thyroid function test is too broad. In a statement, the study's lead author said that these findings seem to provide evidence for redefinition of the normal range for thyroid function tests during pregnancy. Women with polycystic ovary syndrome may be more vulnerable to exposure to bisphenol A, commonly known as BPA. This was the finding of a study conducted by researchers at the University of Athens Medical School in Greece who evaluated 100 women without polycystic ovary syndrome and 71 women diagnosed with the condition. They found significantly higher levels of BPA in both lean and obese women with polycystic ovary syndrome compared to both lean and obese women without the condition. In addition, the findings revealed a significant correlation between BPA serum levels and testosterone and for androstenedione. Also, researchers at Auburn University in Alabama evaluated pregnant rats who were administered olive oil with or without BPA. They found that male offspring exposed to BPA early in life showed much lower levels of testosterone secreted per Leydig cell compared to those who were not exposed. BPA exposure was stopped at 21 days of age, but researchers found that the effects on Leydig cells were seen immediately and remained apparent at 90 days of age when the rats reached adulthood. The study's lead author said in a statement that these findings are evidence that early life is a sensitive window of exposure to BPA, and exposure at this time of life may affect testes function into adulthood. 
According to findings by investigators in the UK, consumption of high levels of fructose by healthy weight prepubescent children may change the cellular behavior of maturing adipocytes and could lead to an increase in visceral obesity and negative effects on insulin sensitivity. In a study involving 32 healthy weight prepubescent children, researchers harvested preadipocytes from biopsy specimens of both subcutaneous and visceral fat. The preadipocytes were differentiated for 14 days in media containing low or physiologically normal glucose, high glucose, or high fructose. Alternately, cells were differentiated to maturity in low-glucose media, followed by exposure to low-glucose, high-glucose, or high-fructose for 48 hours. The researchers found that visceral adipocytes maturing in fructose showed an increase in differentiation. Additionally, both visceral and subcutaneous adipocytes maturing in fructose demonstrated a significant decrease in insulin sensitivity. These results indicate that exposure to fructose alters the function of adipocytes. By extension, the authors suggest that diets high in fructose during childhood may lead to an increase in abdominal obesity and increased cardiometabolic risk. Glycated hemoglobin testing may be associated with the risk of underdiagnosing type 2 diabetes in elderly adults of Asian descent. That was the finding of researchers in Singapore. In a cross-sectional study, 90 predominantly Chinese patients were evaluated. Patients were 60 years of age on average with no history of type 2 diabetes. Each patient was screened with a 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test and hemoglobin A1C test. The oral glucose tolerance test identified type 2 diabetes in about 44% of patients. The researchers found that a hemoglobin A1C of 6.2% was the best cutoff for diagnostic accuracy in patients younger than 72 years of age. However, this cutoff became less accurate with increasing age. Among individuals older than 72, a hemoglobin A1C of 6.2% had a sensitivity of only about 54% and specificity of 66% compared with patients younger than 50 in whom this cutoff yielded 90% sensitivity and 80% specificity. In a statement, the lead researcher said that a hemoglobin A1C cutoff of 6.2% had a 45% chance of missing patients with diabetes in the oldest group. If clinicians screen elderly patients, especially Asians, using the hemoglobin A1C test, they should confirm the diagnosis using the oral glucose tolerance test. Researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, and colleagues have found that higher testosterone levels may be associated with increased risk of coronary heart disease events. Investigators evaluated nearly 700 men, age 65 and older, recruited from six U.S. centers who were not undergoing treatment with testosterone. After an average follow-up of nearly four years, 100 men, or about 14%, experienced a coronary heart disease event. After adjusting for risk factors, researchers found that a higher total testosterone level was associated with an increased risk of coronary heart disease. The risk of heart disease was more than twofold higher among those in the highest quartile of total testosterone, that is, men with testosterone levels at 495 nanograms per deciliter or higher, compared to men in the lowest quartile, whose testosterone levels were below 308 nanograms per deciliter. While estradiol and estrone levels were not associated with coronary heart disease, higher sex hormone binding globulin levels were linked to an increased risk of coronary heart disease events. The study's lead author said in a statement that men who are using testosterone supplements for various non-life-threatening medical problems, such as low sex drive and mood disorders, may unknowingly be placing themselves at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. 
Researchers at the Sinai Hospital of Baltimore and colleagues presented data showing that low levels of vitamin D appear to be a risk factor for metabolic syndrome in older adults. Low vitamin D levels are common among individuals with type 2 diabetes and are linked to poor blood sugar control. In order to assess the relationship between vitamin D deficiency and glucose intolerance, researchers conducted a continuous chart review for 124 patients with type 2 diabetes over a five-year period between 2003 and 2008. Over 90% of patients were found to be vitamin D deficient. More than 35% severely deficient, 38.7% moderately deficient, and about 17% mildly deficient. In addition, researchers found that serum vitamin D levels were inversely related to hemoglobin A1C values. Investigators concluded that since a majority of type 2 diabetic patients are diagnosed and treated by primary care providers, screening and vitamin D supplementations as part of routine primary care may improve health outcomes for this highly prevalent condition. Also in a second study, Dutch researchers performed a substudy of the Longitudinal Aging Study Amsterdam, or LASA, an ongoing multidisciplinary cohort study of the older population in the Netherlands. Among individuals 65 years of age and older, researchers found that nearly 37% had metabolic syndrome. After adjustment for confounders, the researchers found that individuals with low blood levels of vitamin D, under 50 nanomoles per liter, had a higher risk of metabolic syndrome compared to those with higher vitamin D levels. This increased risk for metabolic syndrome was also associated with low HDL cholesterol at a large waist circumference. In a statement, a co-author of this study said that investigating the exact role of vitamin D in diabetes may be important to finding new and possibly easy ways to prevent both diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Thank you for listening to conference coverage from the Endocrine Society's 92nd Annual Meeting and Expo, which took place in San Diego June 19th through the 22nd. Conference coverage is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD.com and powered by Health Day.